Hello everybody, Claire here and welcome to the first episode of Ravenclaw Readers. Just as a little preface to our first episode, if you haven't listened to the introduction of the podcast, I would go ahead and listen to that now because it really sets the groundwork for what we are doing with this series. But as a just a little quick intro. We'll be looking at Harry Potter in the literary tradition, which means we will be paralleling every chapter with a particular text that's considered a classic of literature. And you will soon hear the voices of me and Ella, who are veteran Harry Potter fans. We have read the series multiple times over. And Paul, who is a first-time reader, although he has seen the films, but only when they came out. So he remembers the big stuff, but is very lost on the little details. So that's just where we are all coming from and I really hope that you enjoy this series and now into the episode. Hello readers and welcome to the Ravenclaw Readers with me Claire and Ella and Paul. So for our first week we we will be looking at the biblical story of Cain and Abel in relation to the first chapter of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, The Boy Who Lived. The story of Cain and Abel comes from the book of Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament. We'll get into a summary of that in a bit but first of all we'll remind everyone what happens in the first chapter and Ella has a little summary for us so do you want to remind us please? Disclaimer everybody there will be spoilers in this podcast. Okay, so our story begins with the Dursleys, who like to think that they are perfectly normal, thank you very much. Uh, Vernon is on his way to his job when he encounters, unbeknownst to him, wizards celebrating in the street at the news of the downfall of Lord Voldemort. Uh, Professor McGonagall, meanwhile, is standing guard at Privet Drive in cat form. Dumbledore comes to meet her at night and they discuss the disappearance of Voldemort, the deaths of Lillian James and Harry's improbable survival. Hagrid arrives at number four bearing baby Harry, who is left on the Dursley's doorstep with a note from Dumbledore. Oh, thank you. That was so lovely. I'll just give a very brief summary of the story of Cain and Abel, and then I will talk a little bit about why I decided to put this as the parallel text for this chapter. So, Cain and Abel, a summary. In this biblical tale, we encounter a story of a brother killing a brother. Cain and Abel both deliver an offering to God. However, God favours Abel's offering. As a result, Cain becomes jealous and kills his brother, Abel. Once God has discovered this murder, Cain is condemned to roam the world as, quote, a fugitive and a vandal. However, Cain pleads with God, saying that he will be killed, and so God bestows him with an identifiable mark and promises that, quote, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And then Cain leaves, quote, the presence of the Lord to wander the land alone. Um... And why I chose this as the secondary text, I think initially it might seem a bit puzzling, but uh, this is why when I reread this chapter, I find really it's very different experience when you've read the rest of the series. The murder of Abel at the hands of Cain is often thought of as the original murder. I wanted to consider what it would mean to think of Voldemort's killing of Lillian James in this way. For all the hilarity of the first chapter, with the shenanigans of the magical community um, and the displeased Uncle Vernon, this chapter is full of heartbreak and sorrow. Obviously, Voldemort's attempted killing of Harry and his ultimate failure to carry out the murder is the starting point of the story, but the crux of Harry's emotional journey is that 
Voldemort killed his parents. For Harry personally, as well as for his story, the deaths of Lily and James are the first murder. And I want to think about how this notion feeds into the rest of the series and how it's kind of brought to light in this first chapter. Okay, so I mean, there's there's this immediate uh, parallel between Cain and, 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 and Harry Potter um, mm-hmm. in, in that they're both sort of marked and they're both... Um, identified by this by this mark so uh you know it's it's an identifying symbol for harry and then for kane for kane it's um it's it's also an identifier so he doesn't uh you know people know he will be punished for for murdering him okay so why i think that's interesting that you initially jump straight to the mark because my reading of that story has to do with the murders but the fact that the mark is put upon Cain, but Cain is the villain, right? Yeah. So what do we make of that? Because I see loads of parallels between Cain and Voldemort because Cain mm. is the one who kills his brother just as Voldemort kills like Harry's parents and tries to kill him. And then he, um, he's the one who is banished in, in a similar way to Voldemort, which I think is a really interesting... Yeah parallel there but then of course when you mentioned the mark and that's what kind of I thought was an interesting turn is that that parallels Harry so how, how Harry you... is also banished he's banished okay. from the world of wizards until uh, mm-hmm. he, he's old enough um, uh, until he's ready to take it is what Dumbledore means the responsibility of having yes of having uh, killed Voldemort okay you know I love that you pointed that out because this is so funny especially as you have not read the books before because I made a note next to that so this is when Dumbledore is talking to Professor McGonagall and Hagrid has just delivered baby Harry and McGonagall is saying you know these people will never understand him they're muggles they don't understand you know our world and Dumbledore says um, that Harry will be quote famous for something he won't even remember can you see how much better off he'll be growing up away from all that until he's ready to take it. And I underlined the until he's ready to take it because I think it's so interesting that you picked up on that because I think that is such a Dumbledore thing. Like his whole point, especially for the early books, is that he doesn't tell Harry a lot of information because he doesn't think he's ready to hear it. I don't know, what do Mm. you think? Yeah, he also says uh, scars can be useful. He'll have the scar forever, but the scars can be useful. what exactly does he mean that, by that? One of the big parallels that I spotted is that, in a sense, Cain kind of asks for his mark. Yes. And for him, it's kind of a form of protection because it will stop people killing him. He's identified so that he can be protected. Whereas Harry never asked to be marked. And it kind of marks him out almost as a target because yeah. he's always recognisable when he's got it. And we see in the later books that it's, you know, a big identifying feature when he's on the run and people, like, look out for the lightning scar, that's Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's kind of like parallels and opposites in the way that they're marked is one thing that I noticed, which is interesting because their circumstances are kind of opposite as well. They're both kind of, like, universally recognised as kind of, like, the man who killed and the boy who lived. It's like... Oh, I love that. Yeah. Oh, that's such a that's such a nice turn of phrase. <laughs> the man who killed and the boy who lived. That's poetic. <clears throat> I was looking uh, uh, through Instagram this morning and uh, right. I follow some um, mm-hmm. accounts which are uh, called Paint Guide. They show paintings mm-hmm. and uh, they showed that that fame on uh, they showed two pictures side by side. One was that mm-hmm. famous one 
of uh, uh, Dante and Virgil in Hell mm-hmm. by Bougereau and then uh, comparing it to uh, an image by George Bellows. It's a taking of the form, but it's sort of the characters are inverted. Mm, yes. But it an- yes. immediately um, identifies, you know, the, the images are so strikingly similar, but uh, it's an inversion of it. So it's still sort of like exactly like what yes, you were saying, absolutely. the boy who lived and the man who killed. That brings me back to when we're talking about like parallels and differences reading the secondary text just raises so many of these weird questions because i was thinking about the cain voldemort parallels um particularly with um, a banishment there was this one line that really struck me okay so this is what professor mcgonagall is asking at this point she's asking dumbledore is it true that lily and james are dead and that you know there's this rumor that harry survived and she says Professor McGonagall's voice trembled as she went on. That's not all. They're saying he tried to kill the Potter's son, Harry, but he couldn't. He couldn't kill that little boy. No one knows why or how, but they're saying that when he couldn't kill Harry Potter, Voldemort's power somehow broke, and that's why he's gone. And I thought that word, like his power broke, is... I I don't really know how to kind of interpret that it's such a violent kind of idea it made me think of like how that breaking casts Voldemort out which is why I consider the Cain Voldemort parallels but you mentioned the Harry Cain parallels about like this kind of banishment as well I think just from a sort of um it does very quickly establish the fact that uh although there is a secret magic world it is not a world that is beyond death death is still a very real and um unavoidable thing in in this wizard world like this is the boy who survived death mm-hmm. this, this is a a world that has an afterlife and it is explicitly told that there's some kind of afterlife although it's not we don't really know what it is because we only mm-hmm. see the people who can kind of haven't passed on properly and then there's obviously a little bit in deathly hallows um as well that we we can get to because no one can explain why harry except for dumbledore obviously he has his thoughts and you know he he he's able to explain it but for most people this is just like this bizarre freak miraculous occurrence yeah i think that is a really interesting point and one of the things that really kind of struck me about this chapter is kind of the juxtaposition between like murder and celebration because the wizards that we're seeing in the street are celebrating and yes it is the downfall of Voldemort but that only came about after he'd murdered Lily and James so it's kind of like you know can can murder ever be a cause for celebration because it seems in this sense that they are celebrating that um Yeah, I know. That's why this chapter is really weird on a reread because you start off and it's got that amazing first line about the Dursleys being perfectly normal in every way. It's it's such a brilliant opening. And so the first like half or so of this this, um, chapter is very comical, it's very light and it's very silly and fun. Um, And it's always kind of funny to see Uncle Werner so flustered. But then there's just this real darkness. It's like once the night hits, Dumbledore comes in with the deluminator and he takes the light from the street lamps. And then in him taking the light from the street lamps, it's like the light almost. There's there's a bit of still humour in it, but it's like that kind of light airiness from the earlier part of the chapter gets taken away when you find out about these killings. But then, I don't know, to return to that idea of like, can murder be celebrated? I think they're, they're, and even a, a typical Irish funeral would start in the church 
and end in the pub, it becomes a sort of celebration. The agony of death is overcome by those who, who survive it. Harry Potter is famous because he, he sort of confronted death and survived. The, the boy who lived, obviously. Um, and the spirit of the, the, you know, he is almost like a miracle. He's like a sacred object in which all, everyone's hopes and dreams and the, the, the fulfillment of their life is sort of in this child. And Dumbledore is, is, uh, identifies that. I suppose what we haven't spoken about is Cain's motivation. For killing Abel. For killing Abel, which was a... Uh, mm. do, do you have any thoughts on... Do you... um, I'm kind of not really sure about that. It just felt like it... Not necessarily that it even had any motivation, just that it was like a spur of the moment, impulse, anger just boiled over which is completely the opposite of Voldemort's motivation because, of course, he heard the prophecy and he'd mm. been planning exactly how he was going to murder. Um, yeah. yeah. Is that how you read it, Claire? I don't know. I I agree that Cain and Abel's story is... It, it, because of the fact that it is um, a text from the Old Testament and basically what wasn't just written by the hand of one person. I mean, obviously there's a scribes who, who wrote down these stories, but um, uh, the, the, the story itself is so old and it's got so many retellings. You don't actually get an insight into Cain and Abel as characters in the same way that we like completely do with so many people in Harry Potter and the characters, like even the side characters in Harry Potter can be really, like there's so much depth to them. But with Cain and Abel, we don't get that insight. So it does seem a bit strange when Cain murders Abel because on the one hand, it seems almost trivial um, the only motivation I could see is that it is, it's basically caused by jealousy. But just the idea that um, perhaps that it wasn't intentional on Cain's part in that we actually kind of saw him repent mm. of his murder because his exile in a way was something he sort of wanted imposed on himself. He just wanted to get away from it all and sort of forget about what he'd done. And of course, then what we see is that, you know, Cain gets married and has children and his children have children. And it just sort of fizzles out into nothing. Um but it does, it also lasts forever. Like it, the scar, it he does, has it for, yes. The, he has the identifying scar forever. That is true, that's true. Um, but I think that is important in, in, in mm. when you're considering the his progency, that his, mm -hmm. you know, the going, like this is a, it's similar to the original sin of, of yes. Adam and Eve. Okay, mm -hmm. I'm going to read that, this out because I think this is an important bit from Cain and Abel. Um, so, uh, and the Lord saith unto Cain, where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. It's like the land itself turns against Cain. That does remind me a little bit of Harry's situation. In the same way that uh, Harry lived in the magical world and he was then exiled into a non-magical world, Cain, um, the fruits, he has to labor for the fruits of the land now. And when he re-enters the, uh, the magical world into Hogwarts, he, it is as a, a vagrant, as a vagabond. He's, he's, he's homeless. I mean, he lives with the uh, Dursleys. But... Um, and, he might and, as well be homeless living but with he's an outsider <laughs> and he, he you know 
he he does that experience of yeah. of Cain. Uh, it it does run parallel with that of with that of Harry. There's some kind of parallels with Voldemort. Like, yeah, there's so many of these double parallels. Yeah. That's really I hadn't he's even noticed sort of all the differences. Cast into exile mm, because you know yeah. he's lost his physical body. He's living in a kind of massively reduced form. He's off wandering somewhere in some forest in Albania until he finds a willing human host who will take him on. So in many respects... It's so messed up. Yeah. We will get to that, but it is messed up with Quirrell Man. So he's really kind of in, you know, a kind of forced state of exile as well and also living in this reduced circumstances in a, in a different way from Cain and Harry, mm-hmm. but still reduced circumstances. Basically, there's two different forms of suffering and these two different forms of exile that are happening because Voldemort killed these people. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want I know this was ages ago, but I still want to go back to this idea of can you celebrate a murder? And that's just, I think that's such a tough question because you, Paul, you mentioned that going to the Irish pub and everyone's laughing and joking at funerals. And that's very true. And it's, it's it can be a really beautiful way of celebrating mm-hmm. someone's life. But I have been to the funeral of a young person who was actually 21, who was the same age as Lillian James when they, when they were killed. And there was a bit of joking and, and a bit of laughing, but it is a very different experience. I, get, I think I'm going to come back to this in, in later chapters when we find out more about Lillian James and, you know, when we start talking about all that backstory and that history there, because that kind of loss, loss of life is, is so tragic. Then again, it's this idea of like celebrating murder. If that murder hadn't happened, Voldemort would still be around. So how can you mm-hmm. help but not celebrate it? In a we- Oh, but that's just, yeah. that just seems so unless, dark. Unless we are making this too dark because in a way you know they're not they're not celebrating Mm. murder as such they're kind of celebrating harry's survival and voldemort's downfall yeah as paul was saying yeah inadvertently they're celebrating murder because murder was a kind of factor that came into yeah and they're not thinking about the murder they're not the people who are thinking about the murder are like professor mcgonagall and hagrid but i think those people who will actually have a very close emotional tie with Harry, they are the ones who are really thinking about that because yeah. that's more of the emotional toll that it will have for the future. Whereas for the wizards who don't really know Harry, they can distance themselves yeah. from that emotional side and just see kind of like, Voldemort's gone, our lives will be better. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of like fair enough. So yeah, I think we just have to like make that distinction. I think that's the only way we can understand that to, to, to just see that people don't necessarily think of the whole picture. And maybe they shouldn't. There is a cause of celebration, just as there is a cause for mourning as well. So, yeah. Wait, is there anything else that anyone wants to mention? Or should we go on to any, like, questions? Or Because I have a few questions mm. to ask. And well, I there was one other thing mm-hmm. that I really noticed that really yeah. struck me when reading it. And I'm going to paraphrase. Something along the lines of, um, the Dursleys have everything they want, but also a secret that they dread anybody discovering. Which, obviously, for them, is their connection to the Potters in the magical world. Because, you know, as the most normal people there could be... You know, as they like to call themselves. I that's like a badge of honour. Yeah, <laughs> they're completely ashamed to have this kind of notorious connection to the magical world. Um, and yet, Cain also has this dread of a secret. Something a lot more kind of fundamental. 
That's really interesting because I had thought of the Harry Kane parallels. I'd thought of the Voldemort Kane mm-hmm. parallels. I had never considered a parallel between Kane and the Dursleys. Never even crossed my mind. And maybe that speaks to something about me because here's the thing: I I think I am really prejudiced against Muggles. Like that's I I really <laughs> do. I'm like I know that a big part of the books is not to underestimate Muggles, mm-hmm. um, but I think I do because like I'd way rather be a wizard. Who wants to be a Muggle? Yeah. And the, uh, I don't know. If Paul knows what we're talking about. But the, yeah, the, yeah. Dursleys, the Dursleys. The Dursleys defense they do pride themselves in being and behaving normally mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they have this situation thrust upon them which is a baby at the door and they do the normal regular thing which is to take him in and look after him mm-hmm. they become his keeper yes okay yes wow. i love that because yes. i had always really felt that that's a weird thing right because it's like why would the Dursleys, I know, okay, and we can like get to Dumbledore and his letter. You're just going to write a letter. Okay, we'll get to that in a sec. But I had always found that really difficult to reason with. I mean, obviously it needs to happen because that's how the story starts. And, you know, fair enough. But I think that that's like a boring explanation. Like you want to look at within the text itself. Why would Petunia and Vernon take this baby in they clearly dislike this child and yet they took him in as a baby and raised him i mean it doesn't seem like a great situation there was clearly abusive stuff going on but they raised this baby they still looked after this baby and i always thought like that's a very strange thing to do i wonder why that is but you have really cracked something there i think with this yeah this is like the normal this is like the done thing dumbledore's Mm. always going on about how important blood is the protection of blood um you know, and they are family. Yeah. You wouldn't think it, but they are. Kane's transgression, I think, is um, it's that he, he sees himself not as his, uh, his brother's keeper. Mm-hmm. He is family. Yeah. And mm-hmm. if, if he had uh, acted with that belief, um, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't have murdered Abel. The Dursleys represent mm-hmm. that it's Kane, but learned this lesson. He's, he, 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 you know, the, the Dursleys... They they take on the burden of others and you know they're 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 worse off for having to yes. to uh, I mean Whoa, can you imagine this is, this is a really good point yeah their their <laughs> their biggest fear in the world is their relation with the Potters and they raise Harry Potter mm-hmm. okay that's huge I that's... I agree and like to be fair I people get a bit upset when you defend the Dursley because like look they were abusive to that child let's be real like they he was malnourished and all that we'll get to that in later chapters but I think that is a really good point so again that image of the blood of the land that Cain slayed Abel and his blood was on the land and he didn't learn from that slaying something about the slaying of Lily has at least I think have Petunia has learned from that in a way. Dumbledore's letter, I think this can lead us into this. McGonagall says something along the lines of, you know, you honestly think you can explain all this is in a, in a letter. And I, I kind of agree with her. I'm like, wait, so there's this little baby that you just leave on the doorstep with a letter explaining all this. He was saying like, that, that oh, hey, your sister died in this war that you can't even understand. And here's your little nephew. He may, he probably explained something about the protection. You know, we can imagine that. We don't actually ever see that letter. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if that's important. What words did he use? We never see the words that he says. And I'm wondering if there's something in that, that, that mystery that we are left to explore then ourselves. What could be said and, and how the Dursleys, what, what is their frame of mind? And I think that mm. you've kind of spoken to a bit I, of that. I don't think all the letter had to say is, this is Harry, his parents have, passed away 
I think you don't, there is no magic spell. There is no, you know, you don't, you don't need to articulate um, your motivations of, a, of you know, in, in the community. You just do what is, you do what is right. Um, but listen, just listening to you mm-hmm. speaking, mm-hmm. it occurred to me, uh, talking about the significance of names, is, is uh, so Lily is named a flower and her, her cousin is Petunia, which is also her a flower. Her sister is Petunia. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Potter obviously is a, is a contains soil tilling of soil. Is there is there a, you know an a, a cane? Um, that's his role. He tills the soil. Is there a, a an intentional or unintentional correspondence? Is it's is it a trivial? Is that trivial to consider? I don't think it's trivial. I definitely again I think this is where these discussions are going to be interesting because mm-hmm. I'm not reading this text in parallel with this chapter and saying oh hey JK Rowling totally meant to parallel these two things I just think it's interesting to see how these older stories yeah. do subconsciously kind of give us new well, it's the idea there are only kind of five or six stories in existence yeah, and everything yeah. ever told is a variation of that story uh, it's seven actually okay sorry yes. seven stories <laughs> I stand corrected um, but what you said about that's really interesting because obviously mm. the flower name like we have talked about that mm-hmm. before there's so many flower names yeah. in these books Narcissa as well but yeah we've got Narcissa we've got Pansy we've got Lavender all to come mm-hmm. yeah that connection to the flowers Petunia and Lily and 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 that idea of like a, a potter being working with with the soil of the land that's really interesting and again I think that weirdly parallels what you were saying the the Dursleys kind of making right what Cain did wrong because Cain the land was going to be barren for him but the flowers are the flowers that of Lily and Petunia are are able to blossom I don't know that's kind of yeah yeah, is that like that's a bit too maybe it's a bit too sappy but I think that that's a really interesting way of reading it (laughs) I like I like that I I like that yes do we think though that Paul having not read the rest of the books is being too kind on the Dursleys because I feel people will have a problem with he's being very generous of his reading of the Dursleys and I kind of agree with you in a way but they are abusive uh, they are uh, abusive guardians like there's there's no getting around that Mm -hmm. you know we can explain why that might be try to understand it but it's we're not excusing that like abuse am I being too kind I don't know I think the fact that they do take him in speaks for itself mm-hmm. Rowling is, is playing with that uh, evil um, step parents sort of um, trope of, mm-hmm. of fairy tales yeah. and, and part of that is you know if it's to get the reader wants to get Harry out of that house yeah absolutely mm-hmm. and to Hogwarts that's where he belongs that's where he has to embrace um, embrace all that was given to him at the at the beginning of of his his fame and who he is mm-hmm. it's like, like Dumbledore says that it's it was actually quite important that Harry didn't come to Hogwarts as some pampered prince mm-hmm. who you know reveled in his fame and had a really kind of inflated sense of self-identity so in a way it was abusive and obviously we're not condoning that but it it was the best place that Harry could have been really I think it's fair to have some kind of understanding of the Dursleys in a more sympathetic light in this chapter and then in the next chapter we can explore maybe the the darker side of that relationship a bit more because we're not saying like oh definitively they they are good people or they're bad people Mm -hmm. I think that there's like there's a lot of like everybody yeah and extremely flawed in some cases Uncle Vernon being the most obvious one (laughs) because I feel like Petunia is a little bit more sympathetic although Mm -hmm. I will give Uncle Vernon this 
in this chapter is the most insight we like ever get into Uncle Vernon's mind ever. That's true. And he is actually really caring about his family. Like, okay, he Dudley mm-hmm. makes a fuss and he goes, oh, you know, little tyke and he, maybe he should be a bit more disciplinary. We see that Dudley is extremely spoiled later on. Mm-hmm. But he actually sees all this crazy stuff happening and he's like, oh my goodness, I, I th- this must have something to do with the Potters, but I'm not going to mention it to Petunia because, well, I don't want to upset her. And I think yes. there's something there. And I feel like like that theme of family is so important to Harry Potter and not just your blood relatives although that is extremely important but also the families that you create you know we see that later with a lot of different characters but still is it somewhat redeeming that Uncle Vernon and even Petunia and Dudley as well they do care about the family sadly they don't really see Harry as part of that family and that might be kind Mm -hmm. of a problem but you know Uncle Vernon does care about his family. I learned <clears throat> that uh, 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 his name is is Vernon. It's not revealed in the first chapter that uh, that's his first name. I say I learning already. Learning already. There is it go. not? Are you? S- no, it is. I don't think so. It is. Stop. Are you serious? Does it actually not say does Vernon? Does it really not say Vernon? Um, that cannot I, be true. I, I, I think I would remember. It's such an unusual name. Not like a commoner name like that Harry. That is mm-hmm. crazy. As, as, as Petunia says. That is crazy. Right, it says Mr. Dursley. It does exclusively wow. say Mr. Dursley. But this is why it is so useful to have someone who has not read the books. I literally did not notice that it never said his name was Vernon in that first chapter. I'm sorry, I can't let this chapter go by without mentioning Sirius because this is the first time we see his name and then we won't see it for uh, until the third book. But, okay, basically, uh, Hagrid shows up and he says that he's borrowed this bike from Sirius Black. What is Dumbledore thinking at this moment? Because at this point, surely Dumbledore thinks that Sirius was the secret keeper, right? So he hears that Sirius has lent Hagrid his motorbike. How how does Dumbledore like reason that? Because that's a weird thing to happen, right? Because on the one hand, he thinks that, that, that mm-hmm. Sirius is a secret creeper, therefore he must have been the one that betrayed Lily and James and led Voldemort to Godric's Hollow. But also he was clearly there at Godric's Hollow and was able to lend Hagrid his bike and send Harry to safety and didn't hex Hagrid who doesn't have a wand and didn't hex little baby Harry. So what's going on? Is Dumbledore maybe kind of half thinking, hang on, there's something weird there. I mean, obviously he's not going to let anything kind of slip because, you know, he's a, he, he's a pretty cool, calm guy. But I, I wonder if his like wheels in his head are turning at that point when he hears that. I don't know. What yeah. do you think? Well, I don't know. I've always thought that Dumbledore's actually one of the more inscrutable characters in the series. And he always knows a lot more than he actually lets on. So I was never sure whether he still believed that Sirius was the secret keeper at that point or whether he actually knew um, about the change to Wormtail. Um, So I really don't know. I've actually always thought that he probably knew. Um, But he says, I know this is the third book, but he says in that that he gave evidence to the ministry that Sirius was the secret keeper. But again, is that just him saying... Like maybe that's what he was officially told because uh, clearly they they kept this from Dumbledore. Oh, that's a good point. But yes. maybe he was thinking there must be something else going on. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, that is really good. But I think yeah. you are right in that Dumbledore. I guess 
I mean, this is why I think reading the book in this way is really interesting because on mm-hmm. the one hand, we could just say simply, oh, well, JK Rowling didn't have the whole thing figured out. So she just threw that in mm-hmm. there, whatever, as like a little Easter egg. Um, but I think it's way more interesting to think about how this works in the universe of the text. So for, for a mm-hmm. second, we can like forget that there's an author and just think about the text like as its own object and think about these characters as if they were like real people and mm-hmm. how would they be thinking. So. I don't know. I guess the only way I can kind of reason this is that that somehow sparked something in Dumbledore's brain. And he might have already had the suspicion that things weren't quite as they appear. But mm-hmm. once the ministry came knocking, he was like, well, I was officially told that Sirius was the secret keeper. I don't have any other evidence that that wasn't the case. So I'm going to I'm going to tell mm-hmm. him this, that, yes, this is what, what was going on. But maybe then it explains part of the reason why it explains as to when we finally do get to uh, Prisoner of Azkaban that Dumbledore is quite quick to to believe Harry and Hermione and Sirius when they say, oh, look, this is what actually happened. And I think that that, I, I don't know, like, so people kind of point at that and think of it as like a little bit of a um, like maybe a kind of a mistake but actually we could think of it as making the story more coherent well Dumbledore might think back to this and say oh hang on I do remember that like he lent little baby Harry his motorbike to, to get him away from from danger so okay maybe this does add up I don't know mm-hmm. that's kind of that that's just one of the things that I think I'm, I'm I was thinking of I was looking at this uh Roger Scruton quote the ethical vision of man confers value to the human form Erotic and parental love pass through the merely merely empirical being whom we hold in our arms and targets the elusive and transcendental centre, the godlike nothing which is everything, the light that shines from human eyes but which shines also from an elusive point beyond them. This revelation of the individual in his freedom forms one of the primary themes of high art. Um, even just the image of Hagrid holding the child in his arms and he's looking he's looking at the child mm. he's not looking at this is the the boy who 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 survived he he has a very he's um his his love of the child is uh is deeper than that it's almost magical mm-hmm. uh, by you know it's transcendental it's beyond reason and the whole book the series of the what seven books mm-hmm. um it's about the revelation of Harry Potter of the individual of Harry Potter and we want him to become himself we know from the beginning what he has the potential to be and we want it to happen Mm -hmm. and I think the way JK Rowling sort of achieves it is by um, knowingly and unknowingly referencing literary traditions and texts Cain and Abel Adam Mm -hmm. and Eve these these are the oldest stories we have and we're still nodding towards them and it adds a strange sort of depth and something um mystical i suppose and uh and that's what we're trying to find in this podcast Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's gonna work and sometimes it's not gonna work (laughs) i love that we can end with hagrid and just how hagrid sees this little baby and just wants the best for him. I think that's such mm-hmm. a I think that's such a great place to end because there was so much darkness in the Cain and Abel story that I mm-hmm. think that ending it on that hopeful, uplifting just everything that Hagrid kind of embodies is, yes. is beautiful. Yes. <laughs>